Well, I want to say it's a joy once again to stand before you and uh, speak God's word to you. Um, Pastor James is away right now. He's at uh, he's in Santa Barbara, and he's speaking at a double ACF uh, retreat there. So he's probably speaking uh, at this moment as well. So you can keep in mind prayers for him. I think it's going to be a uh, speaking this morning and speaking later this afternoon as well. So keep that in mind. Um, well, why don't we go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we start today's message. Gracious Lord, what a privilege it is to come before you and worship and sing praises unto your name, Lord. We just thank you for this opportunity to gather as your church under Christ's headship. And we pray, Lord, as we come before you now in your word, that you may speak through your word, that you would allow it to penetrate our hearts, that it would transform us, Lord, that it would make us more like your son, and that you would help us, Lord, to continually daily walk um, as we pursue the prize, as we look forward to that day where we will be with you and see you as you are. We pray now, Lord, that you would uh, help me, Lord, to be your vessel, that it would be your words spoken through me, and that I would be articulated in a way that is clear and powerful as your word is, Lord. We thank you for each person here, and we thank you for um, gathering your saints once again this Sunday, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today our our topic is pursuing the ultimate goal. Um, I'm not really one for celebrating the new year. Um, years past, I thought about this holiday and thought it would, was quite strange that um, many people would gather a, a, across the world and on one day just kind of party for apparently no reason just to have a day where they can just celebrate. Um, if you look at it in the, the big scheme of things, it's just another day. It's just another uh, point in time. It's not very significant. It doesn't have any meaning like Christmas or Easter. But then uh, um, I was reflecting as well and thinking, you know, I enjoy the New Year because there's just something about it that allows me to start again. Um, something that allows me to kind of look and have a, a point in my life where I can evaluate my life and kind of press forward and, and kind of have new energy um, and set goals. I think that's why many Christians and non uh, set resolutions in the beginning of the year um, because there's a sense where, okay, I've gone through this year and now I can start anew. Well, right now, I would uh, offer the question to us all, um, a question that um, has to do with goals. And the question is, uh, for you and I, uh, do, do we have one single goal in life that consumes us, something that is the primary force that stimulates and motivates us every day that we live? Do we have one single goal in life? I would have you think of that question. Or 
do we feel like we're being propelled along like on a raging river um, trying to navigate between hazards and difficulties and we're just being pulled along by the heavy stream life can be like that it's far too easy for our goals and objectives to be set on the demands that life brings us rather than some sort of foundation we kind of just make plans as we go it's been said that if you aim at nothing you will hit it every time other people have said uh, people don't plan to fail they just fail to plan and biblically it's not it's not unbiblical to, pl to plan. Um, really, the Bible says that if we don't have clear objectives in our life, if we don't have clear foundations, clear goals, then we will fail in life and we will fail in serving and pleasing and honoring God. Of course, we have goals even if we don't even uh, recognize them and these will dictate how we live our lives but today I want to ask again the question in our incredibly busy lives are we lacking a clear biblical purpose are we caught up in the race of our society have we allowed the world to pull us in like centrifugal force into a so-called good life are we pursuing the world's purposes or God's? So again, let's think about the question, if I could reduce my life to one primary goal, what would it be? And be honest, I think all of us would have a, a saying that maybe all the church members would agree to, something like, the purpose of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, like the Westminster confession people would say my goal in life is to please the Lord in everything that I do but really uh, that goal is a high goal but practically is that your goal in life reflect on the past week were your thoughts what were your thoughts as you faced each new day were they how this person is treating me and how they need to change and treat me right? Or was it how my boss is, is treating me unfairly and how my workplace is such a difficult place to continue to work in? Perhaps our thoughts have been on some material gain that has been on our mind, uh, possession, and we've been wanting that for so long and we're trying to work to, to get that. Maybe we're thinking about getting a job or maintaining a job in lieu of layoffs etc maybe our objective is trying to just keep that grade point average high enough so we can get into college or we can go on in our uh, college life or maybe it's even down lower than that and just you're trying to get by financially and that is your goal all these things um, and the way you answer these questions will really help us um, to evaluate ourselves and see exactly um, what our true goals are what do we truly 
value. Now, God doesn't expect us to be oblivious to all our uh, apparent needs and all our problems, but really, God gives a remedy to help us deal with those difficulties, those things that come up, those questions that I just gave you. And it's really the same goal that Jesus Christ himself had, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised in shame. Therefore, we as Christians, we need to look at our life. And today may be a good time to start in January, where we can kind of get back to the basics, the ultimate goal, life's ultimate purpose, the thing that we ought to be all committed to as Christians. So that kind of introduces us as we're going to look at the book of Philippians. So if you would open your Bible there, if you're not there already, to Philippians chapter 3. And let me give you a brief introduction to this book. Um, I'd have to say this is probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. Of course, it's all God's Word, so it's all good. But I really enjoy Philippians because when you read it, it's almost like you're getting a, a, a glimpse at an apostle's heart the Apostle Paul to be specific. It's as if he's kind of sharing his heart to the church and now he's sharing his heart with me, really articulating his goals, the things that he has gone through, how Christ has brought him to a certain point and where he is going in the future. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his two-set uh, kind of, uh, I guess it's an expositional commentary, um, calls this book um, by two themes, um, and I'd recommend these books, a Life of Joy and a Life of Peace. And that's really what this book is about, and that's why I like it as well. It, it's about joy, and it's about peace. Well, the letter to the Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul during his first imprisonment in Rome. It was approximately A.D. 60 to 62. Uh, the church as you probably know from Acts chapter 16, was founded by the Apostle Paul in his second missionary journey. And the Philippians now, having heard of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, um, they sent a contribution um, with one of their members, Epaphroditus, and they sent, he sent them on, they sent him on his way, not only to give the gift, but to send Epaphroditus specifically to minister to Paul, to kind of be a brother who meets Paul's need. Unfortunately, as you read Philippians, you'll, you'll realize that Epaphroditus suffered a near-death um, illness. It was either on the way over there or after he arrived, but he had suffered almost to the point of death. And now um, Paul is writing back to the Philippians, and basically he, had, he has around five things in mind. You normally have to write this down. Just keep them in mind. Well, he wanted to first thank them for the contribution that they sent, the gift. Um, and secondly, he wanted to uh, inform them of uh, Epaphroditus and why he was sending Epaphroditus back. The reason being because he was sick and he'd suffered a lot and he, Paul thought it would be best that he'd go back to the church. Third, he wanted to inform them of just what's happening to him in Rome. Um, fourth, uh, 
another theme is that he wanted to exhort them to be united as a church. And finally, um, and this will probably be what we're going to look at today, he, wanted, he wrote to warn them against false teachers. Warns them against false teachers. So just kind of walking through uh, this book, uh, let's, let's really hit uh, chapter 2 now, and we see there that there is a, a great doctrinal passage of Christ's humiliation and, and his final exaltation and how we are to be and have this attitude that Christ had as well. And we also see in the latter part of chapter 2 that it is there that Paul informs the Philippians of Epaphroditus and also Timothy, another servant of his. Coming to chapter 3, um, which we will look at today, um, Paul begins addressing these false teachers that the Philippians are encountering. These false teachers are probably um, what are called Judaizers. I don't think we have them today, but Judaizers. They were Jewish in nature, and they wanted to focus on the law, especially circumcision, if you were to be a Christian. And Paul starts in chapter 3 to give a rebuttal against these false teachings, and he does something interesting. Um, he doesn't give a, a doctrinal di dissertation, per se, but what he does is he uses the example of his own life, which I love, to rebut uh, this false teaching. In, in verses 4 through 7, we have an autobiographical sketch of Paul's life. He speaks of his past and his present and his future pursuits. We see through there that there are various Jewish credentials. You can say that Paul was the ideal Jew. And these false teachers were probably in fact looking at their own credentials as Jews and especially circumcision and saying these are the criteria for being a Christian. And Paul is saying if you think that that's a criteria, look at who I am or who I was as a Jew. And then, after stating who he was as a Jew, he states in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, and let's read from there, starting with verse 7. Whatever these things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I, am, I have suffered loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here Paul states, all those other things were of no use because of what Christ has given me, what I have gained in Christ. Basically, there are five things. Knowledge of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the power of Christ, 
the fellowship of Christ and the glory of Christ. Knowledge, righteousness, power, fellowship, and glory of Christ. These were quite uh, important uh, benedictions spiritually given to Paul. These are the things he has received. And that leads us to our text for today. Now, saying all that Christ has given him, he is now going into chapter uh, 3, verses 12 through 16. And someone might, after reading that, say, Wow, Paul is the perfect Christian. He has reached spiritual perfection. And as if to know this question in advance, he starts in, chapter, in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already been perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what, is behind, what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that standard to which we have attained. It is quite possible that Paul was saying, was rebutting the Judaizers who, had, who were claiming that they were spiritually perfect. And Paul is very clearly rebutting these false teachers and saying, I'm not perfect. I haven't attained it. I haven't obtained it. I'm not morally perfect. I haven't received spiritual perfection. Even though he was a new creation, even though Christ had given him a new nature and he has now the righteousness of Christ imputed to him, even though he has a right standing before God, even though the indwelling Holy Spirit and the power of God was upon him, and even though he had the future glory of being like Christ, he had not arrived. He was still a sinner. He was still in the flesh. He was not perfected. Peter says a similar thing in 2 Peter 3.18. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is, what is Paul and Peter saying? And I think we all know this. The Christian life is a growing process. It's a growing process. It's a process where we begin and we pursue a goal. Now I need you to first understand this and understand this clearly. When you become a Christian, when you are saved, you do not become a perfect being. Practically you all know that. Um, but those who may not know Christ here, or those who may be young Christians, do not be deluded with the notion that you, once you become a Christian, are now spiritually perfect. Um, in history, there has been a heresy, probably starting from here, that is called perfectionism, or total sanctification. It was taught by early church father Origen. Later, and more recently, it was taught by John Wesley in his Wesleyan theology. It was the sense that 
once you become saved, once you become justified, you also become totally sanctified. And at that moment, you are not only saved positionally, but practically, you are saved. And this is a great heresy that will cause um, um, difficulty, to say the least, in the Christian life. So, and Paul is saying, far from being perfectionism, um, I've been a Christian for approximately 30 years. I haven't attained it. I'm not perfect, but I'm in a lifelong pursuit. And what was the target of his goal? Simply put, it was Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. He was not spiritually perfect, but spiritual perfection was his goal. So today I want to kind of go through this passage and give you um, some gleanings from Paul of six necessary elements of pursuing the ultimate goal. And we'll talk about the goal as we go, but we will find that these are principles that Apostle Paul lived by, principles that he deemed necessary in having an effective pursuit of Christ. Number one. Number one is, is probably um, the most important because if you don't start here, then you can't get started in the others. Number one is awareness of our need. Awareness of our need to grow spiritually. Notice verse 12. Paul starts by saying, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. 30 years after his conversion, Paul is saying he's not the man he ought to be yet. He hasn't arrived there yet. He's not spiritually perfect. I talked to a college friend recently. Um, didn't know if he was attending church or not, so I asked him, so are, you, are you attending church right now? And my friend said, well, you know, I think I've kind of graduated from church. You know, that's kind of, I'm, I'm moved on the next stage of my life, and I've graduated from church. And I thought, graduated? Man, how could you graduate from church? Um, I thought. And the lesson here that Paul is giving us is we cannot think of ourselves in any way graduated or even closer to home satisfied or content with our spiritual condition. If we are ever satisfied with our spiritual condition, I'll tell you, you're in a dangerous point in your life. You're in a place where you find yourself insensitive to sin, defending yourself when you ought to admit your weakness, and really deceived. We need to be aware that we are in a process and not perfect. We cannot be content with our spiritual lives. And if any of us are content in our spiritual lives, then we are deceiving ourselves. Paul's illustration here is that of a runner in an athletic race. He's running in the race. It's like a runner at the beginning of the race being aware that he's running and he hasn't finished yet. That's obvious. They started and he's on his way. He knows he hasn't finished yet. And that's the Christian life here on earth. We can never come to a point where we rest and say, I know enough, you know, I graduated from praying. 
I graduated from reading the Word. You know, I don't even need church anymore. The word obtained here is the word, Greek word lambano. It really means to seize or to grasp or to receive, attain, and thus in the NES, obtain. I don't have it, Paul says. I haven't required, acquired it yet. I haven't received it. And what is this it? Well, he says it there, or have already been made perfect. He hasn't received perfection. He isn't perfect like Christ. So that's where it starts, awareness of our need to grow. And I don't think any of us will deny that we need to read the Bible or we need to grow, but maybe our attitude is such that, you know, we're pretty good. You know, we know doctrine. We know, you know, what it means to, to um, be in a church that is biblically sound. Um, we have a, a growing church. Um, you know, I'm okay, you know, I took FOF, kind of thing. We cannot be satisfied with our spiritual growth, and it will be seen when we're tested spiritually by examining our life, and you and I examine our life and we see our lack of prayer, our lack of coming to the Word, and eventually a lack of need for church. So it starts with a humble awareness that we need to grow. And we see Paul, probably the a Christian that um, lived for 30 years up to this point, and he still, even being an apostle, considered himself not being there yet. Number one is then awareness that we need to grow. Secondly, element number two is maximum effort. Maximum effort. If we're going to pursue Christ, we need to fervently give all our effort. Verse 12 again, it says in the latter part, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The word press on is dioko, which also can be translated run, pursue, follow after, or chase. It's the word of a sprinter who's dashing from the finish line. It includes that sense of aggressive, energetic effort. It's straining every muscle, exerting full energy. It's running to win. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 has, has the same kind of attitude. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame as he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Maximum effort means laying aside every hindrance, every sin, and running with a fixed gaze toward the goal of Christ. And what was Paul running after? Look at verse 12. He was running so that he may lay hold of something. The word there is literally to lay hold of something so as to possess it, to appropriate it to one's life. He's trying to grasp or sees something. And what is that? He is trying to grasp that for which also he was laid hold by Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean that 
Paul is pursuing the very reason that Christ pursued him. Well, let's uh, look at Romans chapter 8. Let's turn there. Romans chapter 8. Keep your hand on in Philippians. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. These are Christians he's talking about here, Paul. Notice verse 9. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. What did he do? Once he saved them, he predestined them to become conformed to what? The image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. So why did God choose you and save you? For the purpose of making you like his son. So Paul is saying, for that same purpose, I'm striving after. Being conformed to the image of the son. Pursuing hard, pursuing with maximum effort after the goal of Christ's likeness being conformed to the image of the Son. That is the goal, and it's a worthy goal that necessitates maximum effort. So, not only awareness of need, not only maximum effort, but a third element is focused concentration. I noticed as I was driving in today that in the tennis courts they have targets for archery there. Um, I think it's called the Biathlon? No, I don't, I don't know what that event is. In the Olympics where you ski, cross-country ski, and then you stop and you have to shoot a target. And it takes a tremendous amount of concentration to go from difficult physical exertion to steady your hand on a trigger to hit a target. And that's what Paul is, is, is looking after here. He, it's like a, a race where the sprinter fixes his eye on the finish line. It's like in a basketball game where a player is shooting the free throw and those guys are doing those, uh, those balloon things. And he's but he's concentrating on the goal, trying not to be distracted. It's in a baseball game where the batter focuses on the baseball being thrown or after he's hit the ball on the base he's heading towards. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, you need focused concentration. Look at verse 13. It says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. And let's stop there. Notice for the third time, Paul is saying, I haven't laid hold of it yet. I'm not perfect. And then he says, there is one thing that I do. There's one thing that I'm focused on. There's one thing that I pay full attention to. One thing that I concentrate on. And what is that one thing? Look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call in Christ Jesus. That's the one goal that he's striving after. He's striving after the prize. The goal, the ultimate goal, and that's what made Paul a great man. It is those who are totally focused people, those who are totally focused are those who succeed in life. 
A world, the world is full of many people who are clever at much, but they're successful at nothing. And Paul's life was focused at concentration, um, concentrating on the goal of the prize. In the secular world, we may admire a person who's called a renaissance man, who's a jack of all trades. But in the spiritual dimension, the one who is pursuing one thing is the godly man or the godly woman. And look at verse uh, 12. There's a negative aspect and a positive aspect to this one thing. And the negative aspect is forgetting what lies behind. And the positive aspect is reaching forward to what lies ahead. Doing one thing includes eliminating the past, first of all. On March 6, 1987, Eamon Coolen, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, an Irish world record holder at the 1500 meters, was running in a qualifying heat in the World Indoor Track Championships in Indianapolis. With two and a half laps left, he was tripped. He fell, but he got up, and with great effort, he managed to catch the leaders. With only 20 yards left in the race, he was in third place. And as you know, good enough to qualify, uh, qualify for the finals. He looked over his shoulder to the inside and seeing no one, he let up. But unbeknownst to him, another runner charging hard from the outside passed Kulin a yard before the finish, thus eliminating him from the finals. His great comeback effort was rendered worthless by his taking his eye off the finish line. And in the Christian race, that's what Paul is saying. We should not look back. We should not look to the past. Perfectionists, that's what they do. Legalists, that's what they do. Look at what I've done. Look at the achievements I've, I've, I've gone through. And they remind everybody of how good they have been in the past spiritual achievements that they're basing their current maturity on. It's the same things the Judaizers in Galatia were trying to do. They were trying to dig up the past and push it off on the Galatian church. And Paul is saying, don't you dare let them entangle you with a yoke of bondage in which you've already been set free. When Paul says here, forgetting the past, does he mean everything? Yeah, pretty much he means everything. Good things, bad things, achievements, virtuous deeds, great accomplishments, sins, failures, and disasters. Forget it all. That's what Paul says. Why? Because it has nothing to do with the pursuit that you're now in. You cannot live on past victories. You know, James used to say it all the time. You can't win today's games by, with yesterday's home runs. You can't celebrate the achievements of the past. And also, on the other hand, you shouldn't be debilitated by past confessed sins or iniquities or being guilty because, oh man, I was so bad back then. Don't look back. Most people, or a lot of people, are so distracted by the past that they can never look forward to the future and then, therefore, they don't grow. They're so paralyzed by looking back. It'll be something that 
our church will be challenged with as we continue to grow. We look back 10 years from now and say, man, I wish the church was like it was used to be. Small, cozy, and I knew everybody. I wish it was, those, those are the good old days. Um, you know, we were involved in doing this or we were doing that. It was like this or this is how it was. It was so great. Don't do that, Paul's saying. That's irrelevant to the future. And if you keep on looking back, eventually it's going to paralyze you and cause bitterness to grow. A runner doesn't go to the blocks, you know, when he's about to go on a race and look to his fellow competitors and say, you know, last week I won... Uh, a race and I became in first place. You know, five years ago, I, I was the fastest man on earth. What are those other racers going to say to him when he, when, he, when, he, when he says those things to them on the starting block? Who cares? I'm going to beat you today. I don't care about your past achievements. Um, it has no relevance here. I'm here to win. And that's what the Christian is to be like. God is interested in what you're going to do now and where you're going to in the future. And we cannot, as a church, hold to grudges, bitterness, perspectives from the past. We need to move on. We need to move forward. We need to press on. Notice the positive here. It's reaching forward to what lies ahead. And this is the sense of reaching forward with all muscles straining to their limit. It's the sprinter who pushes his chest out toward the finish line um, as he closes in on the tape. Now that um, is the kind of focused concentration we are to have. And there are so many things that distract us, aren't there? So many things that try to get us off that focused path. But Paul is saying we need to be focused on the endeavor of Christ's likeness. We may need to cut things off. We may need to throw those things that entangle us off. Maybe we need, need to forget some good things. Maybe we need to forget some bad things of the past and move on. Focus, concentration. So that's the third thing. One, awareness of needs. Two, maximum effort. Three, focus, concentration. And number four is right motivation. Right motivation. Verse 14 again, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The right motive here is what? The prize. The prize. And what does Paul say the prize is? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What happens when we're called upward in Christ Jesus? We are going to be like Christ. It's Christ's likeness. So the goal and the prize are the same thing. The prize is the goal. The goal is the prize. Um, is it going to happen in this life? No, but it's a goal. Listen to John, uh, 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And that's what motivated Paul. That time where we will see Christ and we will be um, like him. He will change us. 
the upward call, the glory of Christ. Think about it. That's the reward for wretched, depraved, sinners bound to hell who have rebelled against God. What further motivation do we need to pursue Christ? Even Paul at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is the crown of righteousness? I think it's the crown which is righteousness. That is the reward. That is the motivation that we will one day be like Christ. Motivation, right motivation. That's number four. Let's move on to number five. Number five is dependence on God. Dependence on God. Verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if any, in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you, reveal that also to you. Now Paul is, is, is using a play on words here. He's not contradicting himself by saying he's perfect here now. He's not saying he's morally perfect. Rather, what he is saying, and I think NIV has mature there, um, he's saying as many as are positionally perfect. I talked about this a few weeks ago, about our sufficiency um, and completeness in Christ. Positionally, we are made perfect, but not practically yet. Some have said um, our practice is trying to match, uh, is matching up with our um, position, and it will match up when we are glorified in that day. So Paul is saying that those who are positionally righteous ought to have this attitude. And he's doing this to specifically use the, the terms that the, the false teachers are using. The attitude of pursuing the goal. How this attitude literally means to think in this way, or be intent on this, or set one's mind on it. And what is this? Pursuing Christ-likeness. But then Paul says, notice in verse 15, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Paul knew that some in the church were not interested in pursuing Christ. And it's the same today. Some may be more interested in looking to the past. Some may be content where they are, graduated, so to speak. Instead of admitting their need, using maximum effort, being focused and having the right motive, they simply are content on being complacent. You know what Paul's response to this is? God will reveal this also to you. And that's where the dependence on God is comes in. He simply leaves it to God. I remember when I was a youth pastor for years, uh, and it, it was so difficult. I, when I began, I was thinking, you know, I'm pouring my heart out to these young junior high school and high school students, and they're just not committed. They don't care about me. They care about Nintendo or you know, all these other things, playing, whatever. They're not really 
Well, maybe it's more the junior high school than the high school kids, but... And I was so discouraged by their uncommitted lives. I used to think, now what can I do to, to help them be more committed? Help, what can I do to help them to get on the right path? I quickly came to realize it was not any effort or program that I needed to impart in, but I needed to really petition the Lord and ask the Lord to do it, because only He can change a heart. Reveal here is the, the word that it can be also translated literally um, to unveil. God must unveil reality to them. And you know how He usually does it, uh, biblically? Um, most likely, a person who is hardened in this fashion, God will need to use special circumstances to get him out. I'm not talking about speaking to him, but literally in voice and saying, get out of it. But rather, usually it's through trials, it's through some sort of suffering, it's through some sort of disciplining or chastening. And where you come out of it, God's done this to me um, at times, and the only thing you can do is look to God. And finally you realize your place before him. So we need to recognize in our pursuit that it's dependent on God. And if we're not depending on God and we're depending on our flesh, we are bound to fail. Finally, there is one more element, and that is consistency. Consistency. You can put here the word diligence as well. There's a recognition of need, effort, concentration, motivation, divine dependence, and finally, consistency. It doesn't simply come by intermittent or occasional effort, but it demands consistency. Look at verse 16. Paul says, However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Continually keep living by that standard. In other words, Paul is saying, keep it up. Keep moving. Stay in step. Stay in the path. It's, it's as if, um, it's, it's just like in, when you're in the army and they're, they're, they're marching or they're running together. He's saying, keep in step. Keep in step the whole way. Keep living by that same standard for which we have attained per positionally, of course. So these are the six necessary elements for pursuing the ultimate goal. Probably not so much new to you, but rather um, reminding us in the midst of maybe a lot of chaos, in the midst of difficulties, that we need to be pursuing the ultimate goal. Uh, awareness of need, maximum effort, focused concentration, right motivation, dependence on God, and diligence or consistency. Let me give you a few final thoughts. Some resources for pursuing the goal. Again, this will probably act as a reminder to you as well. Number one is the Word of God. The Word of God will keep us pursuing Christ. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, 
that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Here again, there's growth involved. Keep constantly in the Word of God and you will keep on track. Secondly, there's another obvious one, prayer. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul said, As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul's prayers was seeking for the completeness of each person in their pursuit toward that perfection, that completeness in Christ. So prayer is key to pursuing Christ-likeness. Third is follow an example. Follow an example. Look at verse 17, 17 in, in Philippians, the same chapter. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Um, if you haven't already, find somebody to pattern your life after. Get a discipler, get a, a, a spiritual mentor who can help you to pursue the prize uh, constantly and consistently. You will find that there's great fellowship and great joy in that type of relationship. And if you're trying to do it on your own, you are neglecting one of the greatest resources to help you in your spiritual walk. Finally, um, one that maybe you can't actually do, but when you do, you'll realize that this is a tool to help you grow. And I mentioned this earlier, trials. Trials. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are a necessary component toward the ultimate goal of being like Christ, Christ's likeness. 1 Peter 5.10 says the same thing. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But after you suffer for a little while. Trials are working to perfect you. So the word of God, prayer, following example, and trials. So let me close in just a few questions and then an illustration. Are you pursuing the ultimate goal? Are you growing? Are you stagnant looking backward in life and not moving forward? Have you become just content or satisfied in your own spiritual life? Uh, we need to be dissatisfied with our spiritual life and we need to pursue God. One illustration I heard from Pastor John MacArthur. He said, uh, give this illustration. A lot of people have died climbing the Alps, falling off of precipices. At the foot of one of the many mountains that has been attempted a number of times is a little grave. It's the grave of a man who tried to climb to the pinnacle and he fell off the precipice to his death. The tombstone, if you look at it, reads very simply. And it says, he died climbing. That really should be the epitaph of every tomb of every Christian. And that's what I'm doing, trying to do. I'm going to try dying, climbing, to be more like him as he provides the strength that I need to do it. Let's pray.